There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have been come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and I put uh, on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. God's word. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us uh, to show us what's in our heart, to show us how we might live in a way that's pleasing to you. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. So uh, now we're at Nick. Nick Krause is going to unfold this passage for us today. And Nick is a pastoral intern at All Saints. Saints uh, and we're thankful for him to be here with us today. Thank you, Nick. If you're not there already, if you could turn to Luke chapter 13. So when I was at All Saints, I was asked to start thinking about a sermon a sermon that would bring us back to the Gospels and to hear a word because they hadn't heard it in a while. And I hope that I'm not sure exactly where we're at at Evergreen, what sort of sermons that you've been hearing. But it's, also, it's always a great thing to be able to come, sit at the feet of Jesus, and just hear him teach. That's what this text is. That was kind of the impetus behind going to this text was trying to sit at the feet of Jesus and to hear him teach. And what was that like? What was it like to, if you were to follow Jesus, listening to him, what would he sound like? What would be the tone of his preaching? What would be his message? See, from Luke chapter 9, verse 51 till chapter 19, that's what Luke gives us in his gospel. He spends the most time out of any of the gospels following Jesus's teaching ministry as he travels from the north Galilee down through Samaria and into Jerusalem where he would be crucified. Jesus came to save sinners, Luke 19.10. And this was his goal, was to die on the cross. And while he was walking, while he was traveling and teaching and preaching, he was teaching them the message that the kingdom has come. Salvation is at hand. But I think when we read, when we hear that message and we read the Gospels, we might be, you know, we might be kind of taken off balance a little bit because he doesn't sound like the way that we would expect him to. Nor did he sound exactly like the way the Jews of his day expected him to. What we see in our text is that he constantly is taking the minds of his hearers 
off of the sins of other people, the sins of the world, the distresses that are out there, and causes them to turn their focus, turn their gaze on their own hearts, their own sinful condition, to consider their own standing before God. The people that Jesus deal with, for the most part, are just like us. If you go outside of this building, if you talk to people and say, hey, you know, you know, no matter what your level of religious understanding, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Do you, do you think that if there is a God, that he's okay with you and that you're in a good relationship with him? They're going to say, yes, I consider myself to be a good person. And if there is a God, he'll be probably pretty pleased with my life, the way, the way I'm living. And that's the, exactly what Jesus is addressing here. And he does it through using a tragedy that happens to other people. He uses that to get them to consider instead what repentance is. And that's what we're going to do tonight or this morning. We're going to look at first the need of repentance. Second, Jesus' own call to repentance. And then lastly, the opportunity of repentance. And it's a gracious opportunity that we have. So let's look down at our text. Verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other sinners in Galilee because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The first thing that we see is the need to repent, and it's a need that the audience actually didn't think they had. Jesus is walking, and if you're reading through Luke chapter 9 through 19, this, there's a lot of people just coming at Jesus, and it really is kind of, when we're reading through this, an opportunity to, be, to see what it was like to follow Jesus around. Because while Jesus is walking, he has some reporters come up to him. And the reporters come up to him and say, look, there is a disaster that just happened. Pilate went in during some, the northerners' sacrifices, went in and murdered them. And it was so gruesome and grotesque that their own blood was mixed with their sacrifices. Galilee was the northernmost region of Israel, where Jesus' ministry started from. So while he's traveling through, these Jews are basically telling him, hey, those northerners where you live, we want to hear your opinion on this matter. Is God sending this judgment upon them because he's trying to condemn them as the most wicked sinners, which we Jews think they kind of are? You know, basically what they're doing is they're speculating. They're interested in seeing what Jesus thought about these people, why exactly they suffered, which is exactly what we do when tragedies happen. Outside the United States, when they look in and see tragedies happen to us, hurricanes coming in, terrorist attacks happen, people outside the United States look in and say, you know what? The United States is a wicked nation, and God is judging that nation. And when we look at the suffering of other people, we tend to assume that it's due to their own wicked ways. 
See, the need to repent is first demonstrated in our text by the false assumptions that people make first about other people and then about themselves. And these false assumptions reveal something really deeper and darker. These false assumptions that we make actually just happened to me this morning when I was driving on my way here. I saw this one blue truck kind of swerving, and he uh, started to veer off the exit, and then he veered back on, and I was like, what is this guy doing? You know, is he even paying attention to the road? And not even five minutes later, I'm looking at my GPS, getting routed, and I start to pull off. I'm like, oh, no, I need to get over there three lanes, and I cut over. What are we doing in that circumstance? Well, we're looking at the sins of other people or the faults of other people, and we tend to assume the worst. It's really easy for us to do that. And when it comes to ourselves, what do we do? Well, I was just, I almost missed my turn. I had to get off. We, make just, we justify our own faults and failures and making excuses for us that we don't give to others. Calvin said of this passage that this passage is highly useful if it weren't for any other reason than to rid us of this, almost, this disease that is almost natural to us, to be ri- too rigorous and severe in judging others, and too much disposed to flatter our own faults. This assumption is actually a pagan assumption, too. When Paul gets shipwrecked, Acts 28, the first couple of verses, 2 through 6, Paul gets shipwrecked. He's a prisoner. The natives on the island of Malta help him off the ship. They're you know, start, starting a fire, trying to protect the people who are just shipwrecked. And this was a prisoner ship that Paul had been saved off of. And when he reaches in to grab sticks and is building his fire, a viper is laying under those logs. And a viper bites Paul's hand. And listen to what they said. They said, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. The justice is a God that they're referring to. The God of justice that this God, justice, has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature to the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune to come to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a God. The thing about this false assumption is that it doesn't recognize the fact that the weird thing is not when tragedy falls upon people. The weird thing is that God does not judge us already. We're sinners before a holy God. Why has God not judged us yet is the question that we should be asking. And Jesus reveals this false assumption that they have about other people when he turns the question onto themselves. And he says, verse uh, four, he brings up another event. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? 
See, they brought up, the reporters brought up the northerners, right? And, you know, we don't like northerners here in the South. They had the same sort of attitude. That's not true, by the way. You know, you should like northerners. But his point is, he's saying, you're making these assumptions about them. What about the tragedy that happened in your very own city? What about the 18 that fell on your, in Jerusalem? Consider for a second, how silly of an idea is this really? Do you think God, in judging Jerusalem, said, you know, I'm going to gather the 18 most wicked people in the city, and I'm going to crush them in a moment and get rid of, them, get rid of all of them. And then you know what? Wickedness will be eliminated from Jerusalem. No. In the world that we currently live in, this is a Genesis 3 world, not a Genesis 1 right after creation world where death, pain does not reign. We live in a world now where justice is delayed. There is going to be a final judgment, but that final judgment has not come yet. And God does not give us full justice right here, now, and today. Instead, the rain falls on the good as well as the bad. Crops grow for everyone. Prosperity happens to wicked people and to good people. And this is not supposed to cause us to stumble. What Jesus does instead, look what he does in verse 3 and 4. He calls them to repent. The need should be apparent to them because they're making so many false assumptions. But now the second point, there's a call to repentance that Jesus issues in both verse 3 and 5, and they're almost identical to one another. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All sin deserves judgment. All sin. While there are various degrees of sinfulness, all sin against a holy God deserves his punishment. Do you really think that God just takes human, the blanket humanity, sinful humanity that's living in rebellion against him, and is all right with everyone if they're living under a curse. No. What we're supposed to see when we see tragedies happen, when we see people die, when we experience cancer, it's supposed to be a reminder of the fall. It should be a reminder to us that, you know what? By nature, we're not in a good relationship with God, but by nature, we're children of wrath, Ephesians 2. We all come into this world not on, in good terms with God unless we experience suffering, but instead, we are all by nature enemies of God. That's a problem that all people have. You know, when we don't suffer, it does, there is this sense that when we ha- live a good life, We're not ever called to reflect on our own condition. We're not ever called to reflect on our own rebellion against the holy God. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. And you know, this would have been nothing new to those who had been following Jesus, the fact that he preached repentance. 
Jesus preached repentance from sin, turning from sin since the very beginning of his ministry. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Even at the very end of Jesus's life, Luke 23, while he's being crucified, while he's carrying his cross to Golgotha, he sees these women weeping in Luke 23, 28 through 31. He sees some women weeping for him. And what he does to them is he says, why are you weeping for me, women of Jerusalem? Instead, weep for yourselves, for the judgment that is coming. Even after his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples, Luke 24 through uh, 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you're clothed with power from on high. The apostles obeyed this command. An example of this, just one example, is in Paul's preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Paul says, the time of ignorance where God over, uh, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus was a preacher of repentance. I'm a pastoral intern, and I've been reading the Westminster Confession. And chapter 15, which is on repentance unto life, says this about preachers, that repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. I'm just trying to, in preaching repentance, I'm just first, you know, trying to check off a box of something I'm supposed to do and commanded to do. But the reason why we're commanded to preach repentance is because that's what our Lord did. And this repentance we preach is not a repent, preaching repentance to have assurance that you earn favor with God by turning from your sin. It's not that. It's that the work of the Holy Spirit in redeeming a sinner who turns to him by faith, the Holy Spirit's work in that individual, that salvation that he works in him, is not just to remove the guilt of sin, but it's also to give him a new heart, a heart that loves him, a heart that, in uh, the next section of the confession, says, by it, regeneration, by repentance, 
a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature of God and his righteousness, the righteous law of God, and upon apprehension of the mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, people who are repentant, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, and purposing and endeavoring to walk in all his commandments. Salvation, the salvation that's offered to us, to those who have trust in Jesus' work to save us, and his righteousness to be approved by God, his life to be accepted, not ours. People who trust in him receive a salvation that's a package deal. You can't say, I want the forgiveness of sins, but I also want to keep living my life however I want to live it. No. To those who, who the Holy Spirit causes to turn to him, at the same time and in the same way they turn away from their sins, they don't do, they can't say, I want option A, but not option B. These things come together. And they're so connected that Jesus can say, unless you likewise turn from your sin, you too will perish. That's how closely connected they are. And to make sure we understand this, we can look at a test case. You know, in Luke chapter 18, this is illustrated by a rich man, a rich man who says he kept all the law of God, that he wants to follow Jesus. What must he do to be saved? Jesus points out to him a very simple thing, or should be a simple thing, right? Just turn away from all your possessions. Then you'll have eternal life. But the rich man was a very rich man. Jesus knew the condition of the man's heart that he spoke to. He spoke to someone who it was going to be impossible from him to turn away from his riches into God. That was his sin. The more likely situation today is not that. It, it probably, you know, that could be an illustration and probably is for a lot of people. But the vivid illustration that comes to my mind is the person who comes and says something like this. They say, I'm ensnared in sexual and moral relationship and cannot get out of it and will not get out of it. I love this person. And I cannot and will not end this relationship. Can I go to heaven? Whether this relationship is outside of marriage between one man and one woman, in the sense of you're not waiting to get together, a homosexual relationship, or any other sort of sexual relationship, what are we commanded to say to that person? To that person who says that they're ensnared in their sin and they cannot and will not end it, we have to be able to say to people that Yes, if you do not turn, if you do not end this relationship, you will go to hell. And we need to pause at that moment and say, it's not that 
that your work of ditching this sinful relationship is going to earn you favor in God's sight. No, it's not going to do that. We need to, in this situation, we need to sit and affirm them that they are indeed ensnared in their sin. They are trapped by their love for sin and not a love for God and not a love for God's ways. They are indeed entrapped and ensnared in that. But this entrapment, this person who says they cannot and will not turn away from this relationship, no one is holding them back. Literally, they could drop that relationship at any time. No one's forcing them in this relationship, or if they are, they need help to get out of that relationship. No, they're enslaved by their own desires, their own sinful desires. And we need to tell that person that turn to Christ, trust in his work, renounce any other way of getting to heaven, you know what? God will work in your heart. He will change who you are. See, salvation does not, when we talk about sanctification, growing in holiness, it's not, yes, it's an incomplete work, but this sanctification, setting apart as holy, also relieves us from the dominion of sin. Not that we're going to experience it holy in this life, but we do, we are commanded to forsake all sinful behaviors, trusting in God's way, God's law, and saying, I love Jesus Christ more than I love my sin. If we cannot say that to someone, we've lost the hope of the gospel, at least the gospel as Jesus preached it. That is Jesus's call. But Jesus did not preach the same message to everyone. Here he's saying, turn lest you perish. But this is not the tone of a hatred for sinners. This is not done in the tone of not loving the sinner he's talking about. No, Jesus comes to the people, even these people, with tenderness, telling them what they need to do. They need to turn lest they also perish. And Jesus, this these two things, the need and his call for repentance are seen, his, and his love for sinners is seen in the fact of the opportunity that he presents them, the opportunity of repentance. And this is the thing that originally drew me to this text, because when I was reading the Gospels, I was struck by this parable. How does this parable, you know, if you're reading in Luke 13, seems sort of out of place, but Jesus uses it as an explanation for what he just said. Verse 6, and he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, and he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure or fertilizer in it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Jesus uses 
this parable of the fig tree and the vine dresser, he uses it because it's something that's throughout the Old Testament. This is a picture of Israel, the fig tree, and God, the vine dresser. Israel's his garden that he tends and he keeps up with. An example of this would be Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Listen to what God says there. He said, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it out of stones and planted it within his choice vineyard. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewn out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it it yielded wild grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts in the house of Israel, the men of Judah are in his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This was a picture of Israel's constant history. God had given them opportunity to turn to him time and time and time and time again. And yet, they constantly turned away from God and focused and turned towards their own sin. Jesus is holding out to them the same thing that has been throughout their history. That God is once again looking for repentance in his people. And yet, he finds none. What's the opportunity here? What is judged? What is the lack of good fruit, what is the lack of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in someone's life? What does that deserve? What that deserves is God's wrath to cut the fig tree down. And it's at this point that we're told that the vine vine dresser has decided not to cut it down yet. We tend to look at our lives and see our level of comfort as a way of gauging our relationship with God, which instead, what it should provoke us to do is to consider the fact, and if you haven't done it yet already, consider the fact that you're breathing God's air, living on his earth, living a relatively good life, living in comfort, when what we deserve is not any of those things. What does Romans 2, 4 tell us? That it's the kindness of God that should be the thing that leads us to turn to in repentance, to turn from our sin. It's God's kindness that we right now have an opportunity to turn to him. You know what warrants you to turn to him? The warrant for you to turn to Christ for salvation is the fact that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Jesus did not preach the same way to all people. In the very next section, section, he's going to have a woman who comes to him who has been sick for 18 years, and he heals her and forgives her sins. We see that constantly, that Those who are broken, those who know their sinful state, Jesus says, come to me, you are healed. He heals them and says, your sins are forgiven. 
But when Jesus speaks to self-righteous people, the people who assume and presume upon God's grace in their life, he confronts them with their need. They are sinners in need of repentance. God calls us to repentance. Even right now, we are hearing a call to repentance, to turn to him. And if you're listening to this right now, just like they did, it's God's grace that affords this opportunity. If you're living today, it's because God has given you an opportunity to turn to him if you have not already. And if you are in Christ, we have the opportunity to pursue him, to live a life for him, a life that is not our own. These things can all be summed up in kind of one statement, which is the title of this sermon. Judgment delayed is mercy for today. The expectation of Jesus's audience was that when the Messiah came, he would come and judge the world. That's what he was coming to do. They did not expect a delay in this judgment when the Messiah came. And yet, what has this done? Well, for starters, if Jesus, when he first came, just as they expected, came and cut down the vine tree, came in judgment on the whole world, no one would be saved. Every sinner, every sin that has ever been committed would be judged right then, and no one on the planet would have a hope of salvation. Instead, this first coming of Christ came, he came to save sinners, Sin is already condemned by his law. Judgment day has already been set. But the reason why Jesus came was to give an opportunity of salvation to his people. That's why he came. See, we live in an amazing point in history, and just the same point in history they did. Living in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Second Peter Chapter uh, 3, verses 8 through 10 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. No one is automatically saved by Jesus' work on the cross. Forgiveness of sins was something that had to be purchased by the blood of Christ. Salvation for our sins in particular is applied to us when we reach out in faith and believe in God's promises and his Messiah, that his work on the cross was enough to save us from our sins. 
And if you are a sinner, just as the least sin is deserving of God's punishment, so God's mercy is so great that not even the worst sinner is unable to reach out to him. God's mercy is enough to cover all your sins. If you think, if you came in this morning just presuming upon God's grace, assuming that you have a good relationship with him because you are, you exist, then you need to hear God's words that you are a sinner. You need to repent. God calls you to repent, and you presently have an opportunity to repent. Judgment delayed means for you mercy for today. But if you are weighed down by the burden of your sin, if you realize that your sins deserve God's wrath, and you are broken and contrite over that, turn to Jesus. Put your trust in his work to save you. You're right. You can't save yourself. You're right. Your sin and your own sinful desires are the very thing that entangle you in this world. Jesus is enough, and Jesus is able to save sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us in your word that as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to constantly seek you. That, Lord, if we have doubts, that we would turn to Jesus Christ. That we believe in his promises. If we lack assurance of the quality or the quantity of our repentance and think, well, Lord, am I repentant enough? Have I turned enough? Lord, cause us not to look at our own hearts for assurance. But Lord, if we, if we are sinners and we are trusting in God's promises to save us, let us look to Jesus Christ to be our assurance. Let us rest assured in God's promises. Let us rest assured that God's, the work that God has started in us, he will bring to completion. Let us pray constantly to your Holy Spirit to empower us to turn. Empower us to forsake our sins and turn wholly to Christ. And when we find anything in ourselves that is contrary to God's law, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to turn to you, to encourage us, so that we would see that, Lord, as living trees, we are naturally producing good fruit because of the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, for those of us in this room that are not trusting in Christ for salvation, who are not looking to God's mercy alone to save us, I pray that they would seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he, was, while he is near to take care lest there be any evil, unbelieving heart in us, leading us to fall away from the living God. Lord, I pray that we would exhort one another every day while it's still called today, while we still have God's mercy in our life that we're still living, 
that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.